0: Before we start, I would like to just pause for a moment and, and note that one of the most uh, cherished Bible teachers in the history of Loma Linda University passed away last Sunday. And I'm talking about Graham Maxwell. Uh, I am sure most of you have heard, about, heard of it, but uh, Graham had been sick for, for some time, and, uh, and on Sunday he, he uh, died. And, uh, i was teaching this this uh, week i teach a course on the gospel of john to undergraduate students and i was uh, uh, you know now we're just sort of mopping up the end of quarter stuff in the book but uh, in the, i would say that probably the the most influential book in Graham Maxwell's teaching would be the Gospel of John. That could, could be debated because he taught Romans here too quite extensively. But in the Gospel of John, it just occurred to me that I was hearing his echoes in the back of my head as I was uh, sharing three, three pertinent negatives in the Gospel of John, three negations three pertinent negatives John 15:15 15, 15, I no longer call you servants and then John 16:25 the the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in riddles but tell you openly about the father so the first pertinent negative is no longer servants the second pertinent negative is no longer riddles and what is the third pertinent negative in the same passage in John 16:25 to 31 or 30? 30, this third pertinent negative. I do not say that I will pray the Father for you because the Father himself loves you. So the three pertinent negatives, and I do see some of you tearing up here, as you should. Three pertinent negatives. No longer servants, no longer riddles, and no longer one between you know this is pr- quite a shocking, shocking uh, sort of theological landscape and i I do think that <coughs> that that this is one of the most influential voices that has been heard within adventism, a controversial controversial person, surely some some things and 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 uh, many of us who who have benefited from his uh, very courageous and very sensitive uh, ways of seeing the text of scripture we don 't understand everything he did, and we don 't necessarily disagree I uh, agree on everything uh, uh, but we certainly want to uh, to express our indebtedness to a person who read the Bible keenly and and shared it with with many of us in such a wonderful wonderful way so so, there will be a memorial service that will be for everyone on January the 8th, is what we were told in the, in the School of Religion, wasn't it? January 8th? I think so. And then, uh, yes, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and then uh, the funeral will be, be private. So, but uh, I'm hoping that, I haven't said this in the School of Religion, but I'm hoping that our School of Religion will establish an annual Graham Maxwell lectureship, that somebody will say something every year in Loma Linda to sort of keep keep some of those ideas in play. You know, maybe we will even see more things, who knows. You know, that, that, that could be possible. But, uh, so, just just wanted to i know that many of you have have uh, have been people who loved graham maxwell and and and, uh, and benefited from his uh, teaching and i thought we we would do well to to pause and, and acknowledge acknowledge his his influence here in loma linda i need to do a timeline today so the timeline will have the timeline will have a, Constantine, the Emperor Constantine on it. Uh, And uh, so we'll say that about 311 or something like that, 311. And then it will have uh, 527 on it here. And I will put the Emperor Justinian here. Justinian. And then I will put the French Revolution here. Because we're going to do a little history. French Revolution. What do you want as a date for the French Revolution? Well, 1789 is kind of when it starts. But it goes on and on for a while there. So (coughs) the Emperor Constantine, the Emperor Justinian. I'm not sure exactly how useful he is here. uh, (coughs) Except that he was not a very nice person. And sometimes one needs to remember those people too. So, just to put that up there and have it uh, as, a, as a reference point for some things that I would like us to do, we will do less text today and a little more history because we haven't done that much history. And So, in Revelation, the story, the basic story that we read from chapter 12 to chapter 20, through chapter 20, is contained in Revelation. Is sort of prefigured or summarized in Revelation 12, 13 to 17. Revelation 13 is an expansion on that summary in Revelation 12. And Revelation 17 to 19 is a further expansion on the message in Revelation 13. That's how we we are representing this, and I think we have made a, a reasonably reasonably persuasive case for that. Now, for the m- main symbols in in uh, in the latter part here, Revelation seventeen to nineteen, the woman and the beast, we have represented the woman as religion or as the church, and and the connotation of church, I think, is is uh, true for for religion here. And the beast, we represented the beast as the state, as politics, as the political power. So you have a religious power, you have a political power here. Uh, Then the concept of Babylon, and we could have a longer list of features here for what Babylon represents, but let's say that politically it represents a centralized imperial power structure, the takeoff point the takeoff point in Revelation 13, the beast from the sea, is a composite of the imperial powers that we have learned, uh, that we have become acquainted with in the Old Testament. And the climax of that is a Roman power, uh, the Roman imperial power. So you have a centralized imperial power structure. What does it mean to be an emperor, generically speaking? What are you when you are an emperor, generically speaking? You're a ruler of many people, of many people yes. And you rule often by conquest. You know, you, you have an expansionist kind of ideology. You know, I want to have more land, more, more you know, you, you go, go broad, you go, big, you go bigger. What else? You are a dictator, yes. You are a dictator. Can we expand on that a little more just to, to, to get it down to its most generic uh, configuration, you might say. So you are a dictator. And uh, what's, what's the opposite of a dictator? A president, yeah. You could be a president instead of a, you know, you could be a republic. You could have, you could have government by the consent of the governed. Or you can have, when you are an, em, when you are an emperor, are you, does it matter if you have the consent of the governed? So is that, a, is that a sort of generic feature of being an emperor, that you do not you govern without the consent of the governed? You are a ruler accountable to nobody. And if a ruler accountable to none, that's the generic definition of being an imperator. You know, it means that you can impose your will on anyone and you are not accountable. You don't have elections, you don't ask for the consent for the endorsement of the governed. So that is sort of the power structure in the in the Book of Revelation, envisioning Babylon as that kind of unaccountable imperial power structure. In these representations too, in chapters 17 and 18 especially, there is a symbiotic, symbiotic uh, relationship between church and state. The woman and the beast, they are not always, they are, this is not a, and an, you know, an, in, altogether a love relationship, but there is a, an intimate relationship with them, the kings of the earth, and the beast, they decide, they or they, they work together with the woman, so there is a <coughs> relationship of cooperation, at least much of the time here. There is in Revelation 18 mm. uh, the uh, a predatory economic system, and Revelation critiques that system and predicts its downfall, and then. There is also an ecologically unsustainable system in the world that Revelation depicts and you see that in Revelation eight, uh, 11 18 and also in chapter uh, in chapter 18 to some extent. So <clears throat> that's a summary sort of a back back uh, review of what we did last time but uh, now I I will have some comments. Yes where where did we get where, where did where, where do we make the case for predation that is that is a, a question because there is much buying and selling, and what's wrong with that? You know. So what would it be? What would it be in the text we read that that could establish the case for for a predatory system? They were buying they were and yeah. Their, guess, so it could be that you are carelessly buying and selling and not not sort of seeing the bigger picture, not seeing the, the you know the framework. That would that that would work. You know that there is a there is an. Uh, it is not the predation of the system that is the problem. It is that that system is a preoccupation. That's what people are doing with their lives. That would be in, as in the days of Noah. So but it could be dominant without being a predatory system. Is that? Right. Yeah, it could be dominant without a, a being a predatory system. So any, anything there in the text for the case for predation, that it is an exploitative system. Yeah. Yeah. There, okay. So in verse thirteen, you have the, the trading in, the sla- in in human <coughs> beings, tra- trading in bodies and the souls of men. You know. So, and the, and then you have the notion. There is a sort of sort of tendency in the text that some people are getting wealthy on at the expense of others. There is a there, th- that could be debated. I think the predatory element is that that the revelation pictures a slave economy. That there is a that there is a that the indictment comes at the end of the of the long list of things that you are trading, and on that list there is a tra- trading in human beings, the, the souls of men. That is, in, in my in my uh, thinking, the the case the most the most important uh, point on a on a uh, on a predatory or a, a slave economy, but. That might not be settled yet. We'll have to do some more work on it. Uh, uh, any, any other comments? I think uh, Melanie, did you have a comment? No, there is a tendency there. There is a tendency and the grief afterwards at the collapse of this structure is that this uh, somehow has served, served uh, the benefit or served uh, to enrich, enrich somebody in a, in a, in a, in a way that, that the book of Revelation finds objectionable. But... But maybe more work needs to be done on this, and we need to, to do it. There are a couple of books written on this, and I didn't give you the reference. There is a new book. There is somebody who... There are several books, but one person has done has done uh, work that has been focused on this and has at least two books out. J. Nelson Crable and he uh, the last book he has published on this on on revelation 18 uh, has just been published and and I bought it when I was in Atlanta now but I I I haven't received it yet but but he has written a, a doctoral dissertation on on uh, the case for economic predation in revelation 18 seeing revelation 18 mostly as a description of uh, imperial realities at the time of John, first century imperial realities. He doesn't see it you know, in the sort of pan-historic uh, scope that we have been, been uh, pr- sort of pr- prioritizing here. So anyway, we, we'll, we'll uh, uh, just have that as a, as a sort of uh, tentative paradigm at this point the notion of domination is also a serviceable notion. I think that is there is a domi- domination of something there that, that could actually work. So I don't necessarily think, uh, well I will, say, I will agree that predation might be one step beyond domination. But domination is, is, if we agree on the notion of domination, that would still be a negatively charged notion in this context. That would still, still uh, be somewhat of a critique. Of the system. Well, what I wanted to do, I would like to uh, read some uh, quotations from uh, Lord Acton's, Sir Harold Harold Acton's book, Essays in in, uh, Freedom and Power. Uh, And let me just tell you a little bit about the author. Everyone has heard the sentence, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's Lord Acton. he was knighted. His name was Sir his name was Harold Acton, I think. And so he's also, you can call him Sir Harold Acton. That phrase, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power tend, uh, corrupts absolutely, is found in a letter that, uh, that Lord Acton wrote to a, another church historian at that time, late in the 19th century. The other church historian was Mandel Creighton, I, I think Lord Acton, or Harold Acton, taught at uh, Cambridge. He was a, he was recognized as one of the leading church historians in the 19th century. He was a Roman Catholic who was, an, in some ways, a dissident Roman Catholic. But he remained loyal to the church and lived through the, the First Vatican Council, which was a, quite an upheaval within the Catholic Church at the end of the 19th century about his contemporary uh, in the Protestant uh, circles. uh, His name was Mandel Creighton. Mandel Creighton. And if you download the book, when I send you the link, you can see this. This correspondence is is, uh, preserved at the end of the book. (coughs) But Mandel Creighton had written a history of the Reformation from a Protestant point of view. But Lord Acton felt that Mandel Creighton's way of writing history about the Protestant Reformation was way too lenient on the Catholic Church. So the Catholic faults the Protestant for not being sufficiently critical of, the, of, the, of that history and the abuse of power that he saw within the Catholic context. He has some really juicy statements <laughs> in that letter. He says in one place that, that on these abuses of power, he says (coughs) that you would exonerate these people, he says to Mandel Creighton, you would then exonerate these people assuming that they didn't know any better or that they are somehow absolved of responsibility because of the high office they held. You would exonerate these people for those reasons. I would hang them higher than Haman. No, I would hang them High and higher, you know, higher still, (laughs) higher than Haman. Because there is no such thing as exoneration of responsibility because of the high office you hold. And these people did not live in outer darkness. They, after all, he said, they lived 1,500 years after our Lord. You know, so there was a standard to which you would be, you know, be held. So all of this is in that letter but. From, from Lord Acton. And that's, this is also where he says, you know, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. <laughs> well, <clears throat> in the book, the book is a collection of essays, and the first of the essays, uh, no, not the first, but the second, I think, of the essays, is a, is a chapter on the history of freedom in, an in antiquity, how the ancient world constituted their, their state, their, their societies, then there is a chapter on the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, there is a, ch- a chapter on the Protestant theory of persecution. Very interesting chapter. And then there is a chapter on the uh, American Revolution. Very, very interesting. I just think it's, it's a goldmine, that chapter. <coughs> and just a quick way to appropriate the most... most uh, 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 praiseworthy aspects of, 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 of America. And then, uh, and then there is a chapter on the uh, causes of the French Revolution. And then there is a chapter on the tw- uh, 19th century and conflicts with Rome in the 19th century. So <coughs> here is a statement from, the first, from that chapter on, uh, in, uh, on freedom in antiquity. If I may employ an expressive anachronism, the vice of the classic state was that it was both church and state in one. Morality was undistinguished from religion, and politics from morals. And in religion, morality and, po- and in religion, morality and politics, there was only one legislator and one authority. Do you hear what he is saying here? What's the vice? The fault of the classic state? Well, this, yes, kind of. <laughs> there is power. There is a concentration in, of power. You know, there. You know, in Lord Acton's letter, he says power tends to corrupt. So you should be careful doing what. You should be careful about giving too much power in one hand. You know. So what do you have here? You have religious power. You have political power in one hand that was always the way the classic state the old world uh, constituted it now just to take a view of the old testament how does the old testament constitute power how does the you see the history of israel just to do a, a sort of quick quick uh, uh, review there yeah so so let's do that so you had the judges first and the judges the judge is what sort of power does he have how does the these were sort of low-key figures. They were your next-door neighbor, weren't they? They didn't live on top of the hill in the fanciest house or in castles. Did the judges live? Live? Did they seem to stand apart? And they, they exercised authority in what way? You know, constitutionally, didn't they? They were judges. They were not, you know, they were sort of just... Just telling, uh, interpreting the law, you might say. So they were, they were sort of a low-key kind of authority. Is that, is that true? Then they wanted a king. But even when they had a king, uh, or, or or, let's just do one step back again, to the time of judges. So the judge is, what is he? Is he the political authority? Kind of. Is he the judicial authority? Kind of. Already a risky proposition. You know, you have the, ju- the, the political and the judiciary in one. Is he the religious authority? Yes. Well, you had prophets. <coughs> he is sort of the religious authority, yes. Well, exactly. The the narrator in the in the book of Judges, he decries absence of authority, doesn't he? He sees that there will be no authority. In those days he says there was no king in Israel, everybody did what was right in his own eyes. So the narrator in the book of Judges, he thinks what? We need a king. He thinks that the monarchy will be better. You know, so that there you know that you need a sort of central authority. Now we haven't said everything about how society was constituted in the Old Testament because there is, some, there is a bit of a separation of powers there, even in the time of Judges. Who is, who is the priest? The priesthood. So the, how is it separated? The king comes from one tribe and the priest comes from another tribe. Isn't that true? The kings are always from the tribe of Judah. The priests are always from the tribe of Levi. They are not the same tribe. There is a rudimentary separation of powers in the Old Testament, in the time of judges and in the time of the kings, in the time of the monarchy. Now, we in the, uh, I have confused my students in God and human suffering on this one, but <laughs> we can try to... Uh, it has some usefulness at this stage. There is a king in Israel who really tries to leapfrog and to abolish that system. And the book, books of Chronicles and Kings remembers that king and really thinks bad of him. What, who is that? There was a king who tried to, to uh, sort of dismantle the separation of powers in, in ancient Israel. King Jeroboam. King Jeroboam. Yes. After the reign of Solomon, Solomon had had a very oppressive reign. He is the prime example in the Old Testament of of the corruption of power. That power tends to corrupt, and kingly power can corrupt in really, really bad ways. He levied a very heavy tax burden on people, and when they were, he was, uh, you know, dying. People said, we are not going to have another king like that. So they told, they asked the son, are you going to be a nicer king or aren't you? And the, the old guys, they said, now you really need to to give some uh, tax relief here. And the young guy said, what we need is more taxes. <laughs> and the people said, we are not going to have you as king. So two tribes stayed with the how do you say it in English? Rehabiam, or yeah, uh, with David, David's son, and the other ten tribes, they went with Jeroboam. But Jeroboam is the—he is the quintessential power figure of the ancient world because he will control what he will control the kingship. He will appoint the priests whoever he wants; they will be on his payroll, and he will tell people where they will worship you know, he makes a new religious calendar, he makes new sites of worship, and though these things seem archaic to us, there is really in the Bible no better example of the concentration of powers that you find in, Jer- in, in, in Jeroboam. And you have that story in First Kings 13 about those two prophets who come there and, you know, <laughs> we're not going to do that anymore. Uh, Jeroboam is a kind of kind of example of what we have, what Lord Acton is describing here about the concentration of powers and especially where religious power and political power are, uh, end up in one, one hands. Going on, reading on in, in Lord Acton on uh, power in the ancient world, the only resource against political disorders that had been known until then was the concentration of power. Solon. Who was Solon? Solon was the great statesman in ancient Athens. He precedes Socrates. He lives in the fifth or sixth century BC. Solon was the ba- great, sort of, the, the person who, who introduces a sort of constitutional type of government in, in Athens. Solon, in contrast to the old tendency where you manage to keep things in order by concentrating power. Solon is saying we can achieve it better by distributing power. So Solon undertook to effect the same object, stability in society, by distribution of power. Here is more Lord Acton. If the distribution of power among the several parts of the state is the most efficient restraint on monarchy... The distribution of power among several states is the best check on democracy by multiplying centers of government and discussion, it promotes the diffusion of political knowledge and the maintenance of healthy and independent opinion. It is the protectorate of minorities and the consecration of self-government. Well, that was a mouthful. So what is he saying here?' <laughs> He's a. Rip- Now in the U.S. you have a you have a debate in the U.S. between federal power and state power. Don't you have that? Does Lord Acton? Does uh, what does he like? (laughs) Does he? Does well he is he is yeah that's he could sound like a Jeffersonian. He is really not a Jeffersonian, but you couldn't tell from this statement. He he is he is. uh, Anyway, does he believe in states' rights against federal power? In this statement, he seems yes. to do that. Now, in Europe, in Europe these days, we have had a discussion about the European community. Why was the European community conceptualized? What, what, is the in, what was the incentive behind the European community? Now, now about 20 nations in Europe are members of the European community. It was economic? Well... Well yeah. yes it was economic but what was it well, I mean it was economic to an extent because what is the economic argument and I, and this is you know we should maybe meet on a monday and not do this on a sabbath <laughs> Yeah so so there was a competitive disadvantage in Europe with with uh, being you know so separate now, uh, this, this is a very crude thing. But the main economic argument, or one of the main economic arguments, has also been that the U.S. has a dollar. And the dollar is a very strong cu- currency, and the dollar gives the U.S. A, 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 an incentive advantage that the other economies cannot compete with. So the economic argument has been to get something like that in Europe, uh, and that is the euro. But I don't think... The economic argument was the main argument. The economic argument is really really not the primary argument. The primary argument was what? The primary argument is that Europe had been bleeding and bleeding and bleeding, war after war after war, until the Second World War, when Europe was you know, in, in, in ashes and shambles. So the, the main incentive from the instigators of the European community, was to create peace, to create a framework within which it will be extremely difficult to wage war, to coerce a sort of peace through what? Through what means? Through centralization, by centralizing power. What was the problem at the t- before Solon? How had the world uh, man- managed to, do to have peace? By centralizing power. Solon, he tried to do it by decentralizing power. The European community, just to put this in a contemporary perspective, tries to ensure peace by doing what? Centralizing power. Now, there is an economic argument. There is an economic agenda, shir- surely. And, and now, uh, you know, we'll see what, what it happens here. But anyway, I'm just trying to put this in, in perspective. A- any more comments there? Yes, a- Acton is writing all of this toward the end of the nineteenth century. He's uh, uh, in a sort of in a, at the turn of the at the sort of entry. T- These are lectures he gave in various and sundry places, and he gave a lecture on 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 uh, power in the ancient world. And he says, and the contrast we see here, he he conceptualizes liberty and he conceptualizes harmony among the nations by a distribution of powers, which is not easy to do. So let's, this is hard work. <laughs> the acid test of liberty. The most certain test by which we judge whether a country is really free is the amount of security enjoyed by minorities. This is where, where, where uh, Lord Acton is not a Jeffersonian. Because Jeffersonian democracy is what kind of democracy? Now, I'm talking to, to learned Americans here, and I should be very careful. <laughs> but Jeffersonian democracy, what, is, what's, what was the debate when the U.S. sort of constituted itself? They, there was a, they were writing in, in, a, in uh, some uh, journals called the Federalist Papers. Didn't you have that in your history lessons? You've read the Federalist Social Papers? They've taken it out of the curriculum now, <laughs> now it's, it's all how about how to navigate the internet and stuff like that. <laughs> the debate in the Federalist Papers, part of the debate between Hamilton and Madison and Jefferson, is the, a debate whether you should have direct democracy, meaning that The will of the nation is, or the the law of the nation is, whatever the people at the majority of people at that time think you should do, or whether that kind of democracy, direct democracy, direct popular democracy, whether that would be a a risky thing to have. So instead of democracy, what do you? um, Instead of democracy only, in a Jeffersonian sense, you need. What do you need beyond that? <laughs> well, that's true, no, representative democracy. In California, you wouldn't have that many ballot initiatives if you had representative democracy more than direct you know, democracy with ballot initiatives. So that, that is that part. So representative democracy, but more than that. More than representative democracy. Democracy is not without its pitfalls. Because people are quite unreliable. People could get, you know, all caught up in all kinds of crazy things. You need something more than democracy. You need a constitution. You need a constitution to, that you will. So what is the constitution supposed to do for you? The constitution is supposed to help you when you get crazy, when you turn crazy. Because at times people get ideas, you know, so you need a good constitution and you need to have. So direct democracy by Jeffersonian standards is that 50% or 51% of people, they can decide what you should do. But constitutional democracy will say 50% is not enough for certain things you need. Qualified majorities, you need super majorities, you need two-thirds, you need three-fourths majority before we will let you do that. You will still have democracy, you will still have the rule of the people, but the people themselves have decided that I am a very unreliable person, I am a very irresponsible person, who knows what I could get myself into, I need to be protected against my own will sometimes. And so you have a constitution and you have qualified majorities. You see what I'm trying to say here? And Jefferson, this is the difference between Jefferson and Hamilton, because Jefferson wants to have a simple majority, that's good enough for him. Uh, and then the, the will of the people, whatever that will might be. And I think on this point, Hamilton and Madison are much wiser than. Uh, then uh, uh, experience proves them to be wiser than, than, than Jefferson on that point. And liberty, says Lord Acton, is not a means to a higher political end. It is itself the highest political end. And this is again something that we wrestle with in, a co- in our course on God and Human Suffering. To what extent, where we should place freedom on our scale of values... And, word and, and, and and how high does freedom go on the scale of values in the Bible, in the, in the cosmic conflict story? Here, Lord Acton says that liberty is not a means to a higher political end. It is really a value way, the, way up there, you know, that you, you, you embrace uh, come what may just about. This sentence here I would like to explain. That is the breaking point the article of their system by which they stand and fall. Now, this sentence, you are supposed to hear an echo in this sentence because this this statement is is a statement that has been echoing ever since the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation declared what doctrine to be the doctrine by which the church would stand or fall. The Protestants from Luther onwards, said there is one doctrine by which the church will stand or fall, and that is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Lord Acton knows that that is a Protestant mantra, so now he wants to coin a new mantra, another man- mantra of his own. That is the breaking point. That is the article of their system by which they will stand or fall. But I hid from you what the, that what that is <laughs> what is it? Yes, it is in some ways. see this, uh, the discussion here the, the, the point uh, where that sentence is found, I think is an, is a an, uh, comment on on uh, John calvin, and you could make a similar comment on luther John calvin uh, was the great Geneva reformer, who eventually ended up to be the mayor of Geneva. And he became the mayor of Geneva. He became the political executive for a religious reason. You know, it was religion that catapulted Calvin into the political sort of driver's seat because he he was the one who who brought uh, Reformation theology to, to Geneva. And then there was a physician in those days who... Also, did theology. Uh, that's a bad pre- he set a bad precedent for some of us who, who have followed his example to, uh, at our great p- peril. <laughs> Anyone remember his name? Michael Servetus. Michael Servetus. He was a doctor who also did theology. And Michael Servetus held an unorthodox view of the Trinity. He believed that, that Jesus was. He had, a, he had the same heretical view of the Trinity that Seventh-day Adventists had for many years in its early history. Uh, and the heretical point of view was that Jesus was a created being, that Jesus was not eternal, that, the, that Jesus had a beginning in time. And that is considered heretical. That is Arian. That is the Christology of Arius in the early church. So back to pre-Constantinian days. And many Adventists, many Seventh-day Adventists were Aryans. And Michael Servetus, in some ways, was also an Arian. And you know, when Calvinist historians write up this, they want to blame Servetus for being killed by Calvin because, because Servetus was executed by Calvin. Because Servetus should never have gone to Geneva because he should have known that he would you know, put his life in danger instead of saying that Servetus can come to Geneva with his Aryan theology and walk in and out of Geneva and you can disagree with him, but you can't kill him. So Servetus, he goes to Geneva and the city council of Geneva, they arrest him and they found him, find him guilty and he will not recant. He will say, Jesus, the Son of the the Eternal God. He will not say, Jesus, the Eternal Son of God. That's just the difference. You hear the difference? Your life and death hangs on that, that you get that one right. So say it right. I'll repeat it again. The right way, the orthodox way, is to say, Jesus, the Eternal Son of God. The wrong way is to say, Jesus, the Son of the Eternal God. But that's what Servetus will say. And they give him the option of recanting, but Servetus will not recant, and Calvin says that's it. Because Protestantism holds certain doctrines to be more important than the doctrine of religious liberty. Even though in the early Luther, in the young Luther, That is a very important doctrine to the young Luther, but not to the later Luther. The later Luther and Protestantism will say the main doctrine is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And when they burn Servetus at the stake in Geneva, Servetus will say, he will hold on to his heresy to his dying point, because when they burn him and the flames are are coming up on him, he will say, Jesus... The son of the eternal God, have mercy on me. He will not say, Jesus, the eternal son of God. Because he really believed it. Now what does Lord Acton say? That is the breaking point. The article of their system by which they stand or fall. Whatever good they did otherwise will be cancelled to a great degree. If you do what? If you coerce belief if you coerce belief. Does the power structure in Revelation coerce belief? That is certainly its hallmark, that it is constituted to coerce belief, and it will not respect these kind of strictures. That is the breaking point. Rather than any doctrine, it is how you do it, how you the method that you do this by. I think I have shown you this picture before, uh, this is the Chamberlita. Some of you have seen it. Haven't you? Some of you been in Istanbul. How many of you have been in Istanbul? And you have seen it, Gerald? <coughs> you wanted to climb it. You have seen it also? Yeah. Well, <coughs> here is what Lord Acton says. The pillar still stands on top of that pillar. And this pillar was higher in antiquity when it is, was inaugurated. It was inaugurated here in 331 when Constantine moved his capital from Rome to, uh, to uh, Constantinople and had built a new, ca- a, new, a new capital because he felt more at home in the eastern part of the empire, the pillar still stands. And Lord Acton says it's the most significant monument that exists of the converted Europe for the notion that the nails which had pierced the body of Christ you see on top of this st- statue there was a, on top of this collar there was a st- column there was a statue of constantine who was made as a, as looking like he was apollo the pagan god apollo and on his crown the crown he had on his head his mother had brought in, in the nails that were used to crucify Jesus. She was a collector of relics. She was very pious. Her name was Helena. She had gone to Jerusalem and, and, and ostensibly found the nails that had been used to crucify Jesus. And she brought those nails back to her son. And when they made this, uh, this statue, they put those nails into his, his uh, crown, you know, into his uh, headgear. Uh, So, the notion that the nails which had pierced the body of Christ became a fit ornament for a heathen idol, idol, that's Apollo, as soon as as it was called by the name of a living emperor, indicates the position designed for Christianity in the imperial structure of Constantine. How has Constantine thought Christianity would, you know, what role Christianity will have? it will serve the political power. It will be subservient to the political power. It will sustain the political power somehow. So you have, you have a sort of wom- <laughs> woman plus the beast structure to the, the Christian empire that is in the making here from the time of, of, of Constantine. Constantine, in adopting their faith, the Christian faith, intended neither to abandon his predecessor's scheme of policy, nor to renounce the fascination of arbitrary authority, but to strengthen his throne with the support of a religion which had astonished the world by its resistance. No, this is Lord Acton saying uh, uh, what history did. And we are hinting, or our interpretation of Revelation is hinting to some extent that this is what the book of Revelation is talking about, that it is concerned about that constellation of power between the woman and the beast, as it were. We don't have many minutes left, so I will just just uh, try to summarize what, I, uh, what comes here uh, next. Because the, the system in the history of Christianity, the system where the woman and the beast collude where the woman and the beast somehow cooperate with each other how long does it last how much history do you have to, can you put into that bag you know to, uh, to, until that until that relationship fractures <laughs> what? Those of you who have an Adventist background, you should say 1,260 days. (laughs) You should say quite a long time. You know that that much of Christian, much of the history is 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 sort of fitting under that. From, you know, well, from Constantine or from Justinian, you might just choose him until the French Revolution. That system prevails until the French Revolution, and when it falls falls apart. The French Revolution is historically speaking an unprecedented event when what happens? What happens in the French Revolution in the short version? The state turns on the woman. The beast kills the woman. The beast turns on the church. The beast becomes the church in some ways because with the French Revolution you have a state that aspires to arrogate to itself the role of religion. Not state plus church, but the state as church. And that's the, pro- that's the same thing you have, similar thing you have in the, in the Marxist-Leninist system and in the Nazi system in Germany too. You have what we might call a political religion where, where the state also becomes the religion. And somebody has written nicely about that. But in the system here in France, prior to the French Revolution, and you can look at these slides at your leisure, during the rule of King Louis Fourteenth, Louis who was considered, who is revered, and many of us go to Versailles and take pictures of Versailles. But, you know, we should... When you go to Versailles and look at what they did, you should not take pictures... You should go to the police and report it to the police and ask for those people who did that to be sent to 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 into the penitentiary that's what you should do during the rule of louis louis the 14th 6 million people in france died of starvation it was a predatory system it was an unconscionable system that You know, he says at the end here that because people admired this person and his chief of staff was a a cardinal, the admiration with which he inspired the most illustrious man of his time denotes the lowest depth to which the turpitude of absolutism has ever degraded the conscience of Europe. That's how one should see it. Europe exported its method of governing to the overseas territories. This is looking at pre-revolutionary times. Absolutism, bureaucratic centralism, military and police rule, religious intolerance. Then there is a rethinking of freedom that in some ways he says it, it owes to factors in the 17th century. But I would say that it owes... Long before the 17th century, in the New Testament, the figure of Jesus conceptualizes freedom for the Christian believer in a way that did not need to wait for the 17th century to come along. And then, this we don't have time for, because I really don't want to go back to this so you can (laughs) read it on your own. Uh, I just want to say say, uh, uh, about your world, the American world. This statement from Roger Williams, and we will end here. An enforced uniformity of religion throughout the notion or civil state confounds the the civil and religious, the political and religious, denies the principle of Christianity and civility, and that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. You know So what is Roger Williams doing? He was the founder of Rhode Island. He, was the, he, he built his, his, uh, his idea, his ideal in, in a city called Providence. What lovely things you have in American history. wouldn't we all have loved to be part of this and, 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 and see this enormously beautiful project, where somebody understands the notion of liberty and how these uh, things, religion and politics, need to be kept separate? to the point that he will say, you know, contrary. most people will say, well, the Protestants all believe that Jesus came in the flesh. The Roman Catholics all believe that Jesus came in the flesh. But Roger Williams will say that anyone who practices coercion in the name of Jesus has denied that Jesus has come in the flesh. That's a completely different criteria. That is rewriting the history of Christianity from the ground up And that is rewriting the history of Christianity along the lines of the ideals that you find in the book of Revelation. This is very radical stuff, as you can see. And uh, next time we will do Revelation 19, and you will think about these things, and you will uh, (coughs) come with weighty disagreements. Uh, And uh, the assignment then, as we meet uh, 10 minutes earlier, next time the assignment is to make up your mind whether the the rider on the white horse Whose robe is dipped in blood? Your assignment is to decide whose blood, whose blood, his robe is dipped in. And so I'm, I apologize for this uh, uh, sideshow here, but but it seemed to me we needed to do some history here, and Lord Acton is worth your, your, worth, worthy of your attention.